Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. The artist as scientist. The scientist as artist, or perhaps just the creative soul who breathes music as simply as the rest of us breathe air. But they do it in a combination of color, visual reflection, and scientific algorithms. My guest today is pianist and composer Dan Tepfer. He is an American born to a scientific father and opera singing mother in France. His entire life has been devoted to music, but yet he has a flip side to this life. He sees and hears music in varying modes of invention. His undergraduate degree from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland is in astrophysics. He followed that up with his master's in jazz performance at Boston's New England Conservatory. And J.S. Bach, seems to be his guide. Through his 2011 release of the Goldberg Variations, Variations, we are introduced to the improvisatory quality of a great mind, a scientist's sense of structure and performances that would have made Glenn Gould giddy. As a distinguished jazz musician who has worked with the likes of the late Lee Konitz, he continually shows us that he is on a journey from J.S. Bach to the other side of the universe. It causes me to reflect on the words of Albert Einstein, who said, if I were not a physicist, I would probably be a musician. I often think in music. I live my daydreams in music. I see my life in terms of music. Dan Tepfer has lived a life combining the balance of music and science, and he is constantly reinventing inventions. And I can see J.S. Bach smiling. Dan Tepfer, welcome to Center Stage. It is such a delight to have you. Thank you so much, Pamela, and thank you for that beautiful and generous introduction. That, that was really wonderful. <laughs> Believe me, the generosity is easy with someone as talented yeah. as you. And just for starters, I have to ask the obvious question, which came first to you? Was it music or science, or have they somehow been intertwined all your life? They definitely have been intertwined all my life. Um, in my case, the apple did not fall very far from the tree because as you mentioned, you know, I have a scientist father and a musician mother, and I also have a jazz pianist grandfather and a biologist grandfather. So I'm really very much a, a product of my, of my ancestors. Uh, but I will say, possibly the music came first for me because my mom was singing in the Paris Opera Chorus five nights a week while I was in the womb. So I think, you know, I think of this often, um, and my, actually my mom passed three years ago, and so I, I think of this even more often, this, this great gift that she gave me of literally surrounding me uh, with the vibrations of music from nine months before I was born. Uh, I think, think things are very special. So, you know, I, I certainly had a ton of music in me before I even could consider what science was. This is incredible. I have a feeling that you were already problem solving in the womb, even though she she was singing in the opera chorus, which is not J.S. Bach by any means. But still, there's that element to you. Is this true? Have you always been a problem solver, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I would say that that comes very, very naturally to me. And, you know, also growing up in my family, there was always very vigorous debate at the table, uh, which I was always uh, encouraged to participate in from a very young age. Uh, 
even if I didn't have anything very meaningful to contribute. So yeah, that idea of debate, of problem solving uh, is very central to who I am for sure. So when did you first come to music then yourself? When did you come to the keyboard? Well, very, very young, because there was a piano in the house and there's a story in my family of how uh, my parents, when I was a very young child, had an au pair uh, who was an American opera singer. And she apparently would um, practice her scales with me on her lap as, as an infant. And apparently she would be playing chords, you know, in order to, to support her singing, to, to support her scales, kind of on the outside of the keyboard. And I would be in the middle, just, just absolutely thrashing away at the, at the keyboard and apparently it didn't bother her at all. So, uh, so I was certainly playing the piano from a very young age, uh, or at least banging on it. And then, um, my mom took me to formal piano lessons when I was six, uh, first with a friend of hers in the Paris Opera Chorus who, uh, who taught privately. And then within less than a year, I started at the, at the, well, well, the Paris Conservatory system, not, not the con Paris Conservatory proper, but there are local conservatories that are part of the system in every, in every neighborhood in Paris. And so I was taking uh, lessons there. Exciting. And so you probably naturally gravitated to what forms, um, patterns. I'm, I'm trying to link up the scientific mind of yours and the musical one. In other words, I think that maybe the algorithms combined with the spiritual. I love that you said that because that's a very important idea for me. The, the, this idea that my favorite music lies at the intersection of the algorithmic and the spiritual. Um, and that's central to this project, Natural Machines, you know, where I've written computer algorithms that improvise with me. Uh, but to, to answer your question, you know, interestingly, I would say that it's only in my early 20s that I realized in some ways how unscientific and unalgorithmic un my approach to music was. I mean, certainly I was educated in a, in a pretty serious way in the Paris Conservatory. You know, I did all the, the solfege and the dictation and all that. But my improvising, because I, I started, so basically I was, I was formally educated in classical music uh, in the conservatory system, but what I spent most of my time doing, because you gotta remember this was you know, the, the, the 80s and 90s when we didn't have the internet, we didn't have, or we had a little bit of the internet in the 90s, but, but not much. I, I'd never had a TV, I didn't have brothers uh, or sisters. So like what I spent all my time doing was just improvising at the piano, just make, making music up. And I didn't have formal teachers in that area, or, or I just took a few lessons here and there. Uh, during my teens. So my, my approach to improvisation w was very kind of home-baked and I did have certain ways that I thought about, about it in my head, but in many ways it was very intuitive and mm. I'm, I'm grateful for that because I think I developed a, a very direct and, and personal relationship to improvisation that, that feels like it's coming from my heart before it came naturally to me to, to analyze or, or think about it. And that really came later. And it's only actually in my 20s that I started applying analytical ways of thinking and, and specifically um, you know, programmatic ways of thinking where, where I'm writing computer programs that generate music. So it's only then that they started to meet. Got it. So tell me this. So in the middle, you have a degree in astrophysics. Mm -hmm. So were you trying to please your bachelor's? <laughs> I mean, no, no, definitely not. Uh, I, I was super passionate about it and, and I, I still am in many ways. I think it's a fantastic oh, subject. Yeah. Uh, I, I read um, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking in my early teens and just was totally hooked. You know, I just think these are the most fascinating questions that we can possibly address as humans. And uh, I just was blown away. Um, 
If I'd had my druthers, I, I would have actually done a double degree in music mm -hmm. and science for my undergrad, but it's a long story. I, I got into, into Columbia University, which was where I wanted to go. And then um, my parents realized they really couldn't afford it. And so at kind of at the last minute, I ended up going to the University of Edinburgh, which, which had a late, late admission and was free uh, because I was a citizen of the European Union. Right. And also had a good astrophysics program, which is what I wanted to study. But at the University of Edinburgh, you couldn't really do double degrees. It, it wasn't really possible. So I figured it would make a lot more sense to do a degree in astrophysics and study music on the side than it would be to do a degree in music and study astrophysics on the side. So you were never far away from your musical desires? No, no. It was always absolutely front and center. And within a year of studying astrophysics, I realized, okay, you know, you really enjoy this and you truly are passionate about it and you're doing okay at it, but you're spending like 90% of your time just practicing music and playing jazz in the, on the local jazz scene. I also conducted a couple operas in the, in the Edinburgh Opera Society. And, you know, it, it was clear that, 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 that when you look at the, my usage of time, music is, is where my heart was. So I knew that, I knew that that's what I, what I had to do. But it just strikes me that you have allowed your mind to go to a place. It's like space, the final frontier. I mean, you've allowed this to happen where you've stretched all sense of consciousness within science and brought music into it, which has really changed the realm to me. And I know you really do Harold J.S. Bach as kind of your guide. And this is something that's so interesting because I have always felt, not to get too metaphysical here, but I've always felt he transcended time. And I mm -hmm. think he was one of the greatest romantic composers known to man. Hmm. I think that there is something about his writing that is always searching in a very scientific fashion. We know that, for instance, that he had an interest in numerology, and we know that he word painted as much as he was able to in a kind of code. Mm -hmm. And I do believe he's, he's just from another planet, but, but I think you have adhered to this and had a conversation with him. That's how I feel when I watch you in your performances and I listen to you and your lectures, which are so extraordinary in this oh, combination of thinking of it in another way. Is that how you view your work, uh, Bach, for instance, in the inversion of his pieces? Uh, yes, you know, I, I think you, you said something that I completely agree with and I think is very important, which is that, that Bach's music feels timeless. Yeah. And why does it feel timeless? Well, what is timeless? Uh, things that are timeless, I, I think one thing that, is, that we can all agree is timeless is truth, right? Uh, any concept of objective truth, uh, anything that we can agree, it is this way. Well, it, is, it will always be that way. I mean, if you can really prove it, right? Mm -hmm. And the basis for Bach's music is actually logic. You know, it's uh, these very strong concepts of how sounds resonate literally in physics and how sounds res resonate together, right? Uh, the concept and counterpoint of, of consonance and dissonance, it's not some made up idea. It's not some cultural idea. I mean, there are obviously cultural and stylistic aspects to his music, but underlying it all are these very fundamental ideas of what sounds uh, work well together and what sounds don't and how you move between them. So that truth, I think, is, is, is truly an objective truth. And there's something about it that will always feel current. The brilliance of Bach to me, and this is where we come back to this idea of, of the, the intersection of the algorithmic and the spiritual, is that um, he uses algorithms. You know, algorithms just mean basically a, a system of rules consistently applied. 
he uses algorithms to structure his music in the same way that an architect will use a structural designer to make the structure of their building so, so, so it doesn't fall apart on them. So he uses these algorithms, these algorithms to structure his music. But where he's very, very smart is that he never over-prescribes the music. He does not over-constrain the music. And so he leaves these very significant degrees of freedom for mystery, for spirituality, for intuition, for emotion. And that's why his music is so rich. You know, I, I would contrast that with, for example, the music of the total serialists post-Second uh, World War, you know, the, the movement that Boulez was involved with and, and mm -hmm. all that, that I think in many ways, and, he, and Boulez even talked about this later in his life, was really over-prescribed. You, you, you develop a actually pretty superficial numerical system that completely determines the entirety of the music. I mean, determines the pitches, determines the rhythms, determines the dynamics, uh, sometimes it determines the overall structure, uh, etc. And there's no space left for the spiritual and, and for these things that makes it, make us human. So it's actually over-constrained. And the converse is also true. You can, you can have music that's under-constrained. And I do think that's what makes Bach's music timeless is, is that exquisitely balanced meeting point of the algorithmic and the spiritual, the, the constrained and the unconstrained. So tell me your ideas about coding. I gather you are a self-taught coder. And how, mm -hmm. how important is this in your music making? Well, I would say that the, the ideas that I use in coding to make music, uh, which are just kind of fundamental ideas about how music works, you know, these are things I learned from studying harmony and counterpoint and, and from studying the music of Bach and other composers. Those ideas are important in my music. Uh, now, coding itself, I would say it's only important in my music in the sense that I've used algorithms to find musical playgrounds for me to play in that have opened up new sounds to me as, a, as an artist. And then those actually end up finding their way back into my playing, even when, the, even when, I, when I'm not playing with an, with an algorithm. But other than that, I would say that music for me is music. And, and one of the things that I've realized is the, is the deeper I go into computers and algorithms and you know, highfalutin uh, logical ideas, the more I need to deepen my abilities in the fundamental realms of music, like you know, being able to play in decent time, being able to make a decent melody, being able to do decent voice leading, being able to deal uh, competently with, with harmonic movement, you know, just these absolutely core values that are actually, as you well know, as a practicing musician, very difficult. And, and they're actually kind of in the realm of, of being an athlete, you know, where you have to maintain these things on a daily basis. So, so that, that I would say is really the core of my music and the, the coding is kind of a, a fun partner in, in play uh, alongside the music. Well, tell us then, I want to lead you into that fabulous visual you have. And I love this whole 3D imprint that you do. Can you explain to us the merit of the visual here and where you're going with this, really? Building a triad. I mean, I'm fascinated hmm. by this, Dan. Well, I, I'm glad you are because I, I'm fascinated by it too. I, I absolutely love this, I love this stuff. So, you know, the idea behind, behind what you're just referring to, which is, which is one of the, the algorithms from, from my album, Natural Machines, that's called triad sculpture. And the idea is to go really deep into the history of consonants in music, all the way back to the Pythagoreans. Well, the Pythagoreans were the first people to actually codify 
mathematically why certain pitches together sound good and why others don't. Mm -hmm. And frequencies that are related by whole number ratios, uh, especially low whole number ratios, tend to sound good together. So just as an example, if I play this C and then I play a C an octave above, in the time that this C vibrates once, this one vibrates twice. Okay, so this is, this is such a fundamental logical proposition, right? Like these two sounds are literally the relationship of two to one. That's what they are. We hear that, that is two to one. Okay, this, that's three to two. This, that's five to four. This, that's six to five. This, you have a few different choices for this one, but, but nine to eight would be the, the most fundamental. And, and, and when I say this, I have to be very careful. There is no concept of music that I'm using here. This is literally just the frequencies that these are vibrating at. Right. We don't even have to be speaking about sound here. Like you could talk about the ratios of the, of the orbits of planets going around a star. So for example, if this is Mars going around in whatever it is, um, a little bit less than, than 700 days going, going, going around the, the sun, this is Earth because Earth orbits in a little bit less than twice as long as Mars. Sorry, a little bit more, a little bit more than, than twice as long as... Wait, <laughs> let me get this straight. Um, right, so Mars takes a little bit less than twice as long as Earth takes to go around the sun. Okay. And so as a result, it's not an octave. That would be one to two. And mm -hmm. this is a little bit less and it's almost exactly a major seventh. Okay, so in other words, these sound relationships that we know and love, you know, something like a major triad, that's six to five to four in terms of the frequency relationships. Mm -hmm. um, minor triad, that's 10 to 12 to 15 in terms of the frequency relationships. These sounds that we know, that we know and love are absolutely just basic numbers. They are numbers, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting is that historically, it's not just that the Pythagoreans figured out mathematically what people already knew sounded good. That is true to an extent. It's also that their discoveries of uh, generalizing why it was that these things sounded good then had an influence in the history of music in terms of what people, especially in the monasteries and the, you know, the Renaissance and all that, decided um, they could use versus what they couldn't use. So, so it's really a two-way street between our intuition, our our kind of intuitive experience of music and our use of, of, of our rational brain in order to test the limits of that. So coming back to your question, which is about this particular algorithm, which is triad sculpture, what I'm doing is mapping in three dimensions these ratios, these um, frequency ratios between the tones of harmonies. So I, I could actually turn it on right now, but it would take a, it would take a, a few minutes. Uh, to show you, but but for example, you know when I play a major triad, the, that's as I mentioned six to five to four, and if I map those three numbers on the three sides of a cube in three dimensions, then that gives a particular shape that's a very beautiful shape, and then if I do this, that's a completely different shape, right? Because uh, that's ten to twelve to fifteen, and what's what I think is kind of fascinating is that the minor triad has a denser shape than the major triad, mm -hmm. which 
completely mimics our intuitive experience of these sounds. You know, the mitotrad, I think everybody agrees, is just kind of more complex and, and more exactly. uh, difficult in some ways than the major triad, which is just simpler and more open and natural. And open, yeah. 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 But visually, it's so stunning what you're replicating. I mean, this adds a, a, a completely different dynamic to th this whole idea of music and science together. But yet now you're a visual artist. I find this really <laughs> interesting. Your lectures, your performances you're doing where you have the computer set on top of the piano and we get to see visually the essence of these notes as you have coded. It's really fascinating to me. It, gi it gives us a whole another dimension, a complete dimension, I think. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about that. So you must spend a lot of time, I mean, with scientists and musicians alike talking about these variables to an extent I mean in some ways um, I I try to preserve my non-expertise in these fields because mm -hmm. you know if you think about something like these Pythagorean ratios um, these are not new ideas at all these are very ancient ideas and they're things that people have been thinking about for literally millennia and you know if I were an academic for example it just would make no sense for me to, to come along and say, hey, ever heard of the Pythagorean ratios between frequencies? Uh, because these are very old ideas. But as an artist, mm -hmm. I get to say, I find these ideas beautiful. And here's maybe just a slightly different way of thinking about them or at least of seeing them. And not only that, but they've inspired me to improvise in this particular way. And, and here's a piece of music that has come out of it that doesn't sound like anything else. That is completely, I think, valid. And, and I, I do feel like it's a, it's a respectful co contribution to our world, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that comes from my not being too closely intertwined with you know, the academic circles of, of music theory and all that, although I actually enjoy reading about music theory. But, but I like to preserve this kind of innocence of coming across ideas, you know, which I read about in books, or sometimes I just come across just by, by thinking about it myself um, and, and not being too concerned about how, how new they are, but more, more concerned about how much they excite me. I would think so. That gets back to your intuitiveness about this, what feels right to you. Is mm -hmm. that what motiv motivated you in inverting uh, the Goldberg variations, for instance? Yeah, great question. Um, certainly, I would never have gone through with that if I hadn't been so excited about literally how it sounded. So, yeah. so you know, just, just for your listeners, um, what I did during the pandemic, or one of the things I did right at the beginning of the pandemic, is I wrote a program for my computer that would, uh, where I could play um, any music, actually. Uh, but in this case, I was playing the Goldberg Variations by Bach, and I played them exactly as he composed them. And then I would push a button and my computer, thanks to this wonderful instrument, which is a Yamaha Disclavier, which can, is, a, is a modern day player piano, which can play all by itself. Um, my computer would turn what I just played upside down. So, so the technical term for that in music would be a chromatic inversion. And so we would hear what I just played exactly the same, except that all the pitch relationships are reversed. And with the music of Bach, because the underlying structure is so strong and because he's using the rules of counterpoint um, as, as the, the kind of underlying force underneath it all, 
um, it just sounds fantastic. I just think it sounds so cool. It's like, um, it's like hearing the Goldberg variations completely freshly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just love that. So, so you're right. If I hadn't intuitively loved those sounds, I never would have gone through with it. So interesting. You know, and you and I know that J.S. Bach did a bit of his own inversions uh, in, within his pieces. Of course, and yeah. He was a clever guy. And sometimes I think he was <laughs> leaving it to us to figure it out, to check how stupid we were. Maybe we weren't listening with the right ears to see if we were awake. And yeah, I, yeah. Well, was, you know, e even one of my favorite examples of this, you know, I have this new record, Inventions, Reinventions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know. Right. That's just upside down. Turned so so down. so inversion is, is such a core uh, part of his artistry that it turns up even in, in, in his most simple pieces. You know, I read a fascinating interview about you, um, or I should say a review about your playing in Chicago. And they said, they quoted with you when you said you came into this all backwards. And <laughs> I think this is so cute. I mean, because even Beethoven at one point in his late sonatas was inverting statements that he made, musical statements that he made. And I, I think at some point, all composers want to stretch the limits, you know? And just like you're talking about the planets in the sky, and, and I said in my intro about you, you're stretching our universe. And it really does play with our, our consciousness about how we listen. So Well, it is, it, is, it is essential, I think, to at some point be reminded that music is so much bigger than us. It's, mm -hmm. it's bigger than, than even humanity. It's a kind of a core property of numbers and the universe, I think. And, uh, you know, the... the it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the ancient Greeks had this idea of the harmony of the spheres. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, a very fanciful idea is this idea that if you're in a planetary system where the, or, where the planets orbit in uh, relationships to each other that are whole number ratios, so this is this idea of what is harmonious, mm -hmm. um, that life in that planetary system will be happier than a system uh, where planets are orbiting and kind of arbitrary relationships that are not whole number ratios. But as fanciful as that idea is, because I, I, I doubt that it actually has any influence on life, uh, I think it's more of a, of a, of a statement about um, aesthetic beauty in general. Mm -hmm. and, and the deeper point that I wanted to make is that it embedded in that very, very ancient idea is this notion that harmony is much bigger than humanity, is much bigger than just our life on Earth. Dan Tepfer is simply one of the most extraordinary musicians of our time. If you have enjoyed this conversation, then I hope you will return next Tuesday at 9.02 a.m. for part two of Dan Tepfer's story. And you can easily find information about his recordings and performances at dantepfer.com. I hope you will also go to centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for more of my shows, interviews, and writings. Let's support the arts, ladies and gentlemen. It affords us the talents of a man like Dan Tepfer to enhance our lives. Until next time, please stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. <laughs>